Richard's going to read, you, read it for us first. And we're just going to read chapter 20, which you'll find on page 1248 of the Church Bibles. Page 1248. Revelation 20, beginning at verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Andrew, Andrew thank, you, thank you for praying for me. I can assure you I need every one of your prayers um, coming to this passage. It's been quite a, quite a struggle for me. And I hope the Lord will, will speak through me tonight. Because it's exciting. I was thinking that Andrew actually is very blessed having the last two chapters in Revelation, which is all just fantastic. But actually, um, there are immense riches in this passage. 
And last Sunday, Chris Jones uh, brilliantly unpacked the previous uh, three chapters, and in it, we saw the counterfeit of Christ's divine power in the prostitute who sits not on a throne, but on a hideous beast. And her hand holds up a cup, which rather than ordering creation and explaining the meaning of history, has led to the misery of countless people throughout history. This is the picture of all power which opposes God. Power to destroy, power to oppress, power to kill. And so it falls on me now to explain the imagery in chapters 19 and 20. And hopefully God willing draw some applications for us all. These two chapters are the final act of a cosmic battle. And although the winner is beyond doubt, you'll have to come back next Sunday to hear Andrew talk about it. Are we all ready to go on the screens? It'd be good. Yep, thank you. Good. I know what it's like sitting down there. As soon as something goes up on the screen, you forget everything else. You're just, you're just looking, even if it's some stupid pointer moving around and a clock <laughs> ticking down. Uh, you, it, there's something magnetic about it. But um, anyway, uh, I can't possibly um, preach on two whole chapters uh, in one sermon, so I'm going to focus on chapter 20, which you've just heard read to you. But before I do, I just very quickly want to go over the preceding chapter, number 19. And it starts um, with, with something that sounds like a great roar of a multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah. And the first eight verses are a wonderful song of praise, adoration, and worship to God who has condemned the great prostitute. Those of you who've been to large Christian gatherings, Soul Survivor, New Wine, Spring Harvest, will have an inkling of what that sort of worship must be like. But even so, it's probably beyond our wildest imagination. But in verse 9, the angel tells John to write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And this gives us a vivid picture of what Jesus' parable in Luke 14, do you remember it's the parable of the great wedding banquet, what that banquet is actually going to look like. John then pictures heaven standing open and a rider on a white horse uh, standing before him. And this is a picture of Jesus, but not a picture that is depicted in children's picture Bibles. For as Jesus came first to save, when he returns, he comes to judge. That's why his robes are dipped in blood. Gone is the image of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Here is one called faithful and true, king of kings, lord of lords, riding ahead of the vast armies of heaven. Out of his mouth a sharp sword striking down the nations. Enough is enough. Satan's time is up. It's time for justice to prevail. And the chapter ends with this great supper of God standing in grim and stark contrast to the wedding feast I was just talking about. One is a celebration the other is total devastation and annihilation, a scene of gruesome carnage as those in opposition to Christ perish. And so to chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Well, I don't know if any of you watched Andy Murray's match against Gasquet on Monday, 
but there was a sense of Murray being defeated, downtrodden, he lost the first two sets, and then by sheer grit and determination came back, seemingly from the brink of defeat, to win the final three sets. And of course there have been many other comeback kids, both in sport and politics, in all sorts of professions and ways of life. But after centuries of persecution and ridicule, it's Christianity that we see here in the closing chapters of the Bible coming back to win in one final and devastating victory. How many people have underestimated Christians and the one in whom we have our faith? Of course, it's tempting to look at this as a battle to come. After all, we're right at the very, very end of the Bible. So is this all to come? After the first three chapters of Revelation, remember those are the letters written to the different churches, Revelation looks at the entire span between Christ's first and second coming through a kaleidoscope of images, pictures, and dreams. And the story is viewed from different perspectives. Sometimes it's from a heavenly viewpoint. Sometimes it's with an angel's eye view. Uh, sometimes it's from the view of the persecuted church. It's as if it's some blockbuster film, filmed by lots of different cameras, cameras from different positions, uh, with, edited together with flashbacks, flash-forwards. And I'm sure you'll agree with me that these sorts of films, if done well, are incredible. Uh, but I suspect it's a genre that's only taken on by really, really good uh, and experienced directors. And as I've mentioned before in this series, I don't believe it is a chronological story in which one can identify a physical historical happening such as the Great War with verse something something in a particular chapter. As each section in the Revelation begins, it's as if John the Evangelist starts the story all over again, saying, let's look at that action one more time, but this time we'll look at it from a different camera position. But like a doting parent never bores of looking at a home movie, a home video of their child's first steps or its first birthday or whatever it is, so we as Christians must never bore of hearing about Christ's victory at the cross. And this, of course, is one of the most repetitive themes in the Revelation. Time and time again in the book, we read about the victory of good over the forces of evil, but each time from a different perspective. So here we are in chapter 20, reading about Christ's victory. Um, in the preceding chapter 19, verse 16, we read about Armageddon there. I'm sorry, that was in, in chapter 16, yeah, in Armageddon, and also in... In chapter 19, we read about the, that awful victory, that wonderful victory, but with an awful picture with the birds in the air eating the, the, the flesh of the slain. It's the same picture, it's, a, it's the same victory, but different pictures. And this time in chapter 20, we read about it from the point of view of this thousand-year reign culminating in the destruction of Satan. And I first, first of all want to unpack what that millennium means, what's it all about, what happened, has it happened, is it going to happen? What do Christians understand by the millennium? Well, interpreters of this chapter are divided into three broad categories. I have a great problem getting this word out right, so I just make sure my false teeth are in. Post-millennialists believe that Christians help establish the thousand-year kingdom on earth prior 
to uh, Jesus' return. Christ's second coming will not occur until after the thousand years. Pre-millennialists believe Jesus will return to establish a specific thousand-year kingdom. A-millennialists generally believe that the thousand-year kingdom is a symbolic period of time uh, for the present age. In other words, that the millennium is the reign of Christ in the hearts of believers in this era. It's another way of referring uh, perhaps as to the age of the church. This period ends with a second coming of Christ. And people like Augustine, Calvin, and Luther thought this. Most evangelicals today are pre-millennialists or amillennialists, although it's interesting to note that Charles Wesley, sorry, John Wesley, Charles Finney, and D.L. Moody all, had, all held completely different views. But it's really important that this isn't taken to be an issue that divides Christians because it need not cause division. Because each of those views acknowledges what is most important about this, that Christ will return, he will defeat Satan, and reign forever. So for me, the millennium marks the rule of Christ during our present Christian era. My understanding is that it's on. It started, it's happening now, it's rolling. Well, you may say to yourself, okay, well, that, that's fine. But hang on a moment, Christ died 2,000 years ago. What's going on there? Well, we should be clear by now that the use of numbers in Revelation is also figurative. A thousand is a multiple of ten times ten times ten. The number ten signifies completeness and finality. So you can take a thousand to mean the ultimate completeness and finality. We saw early in the book that seven is the number that signifies perfection. Twelve represents the church. It's the number of uh, apostles, the number of tribes. Four represents creation, the four corners of the earth, and, and so on. So I'm sure you understand what I mean. So whilst the millennium signifies the rule of Christ, it also reveals the frustration of Satan by the gospel. We've seen this before back in chapter 12, when the great dragon was hurled down to earth, having been overcome by the blood of the lamb and the, and the words of the testimony of the saints. But that wasn't the final destruction. It was the defeat when Christ died for us on the cross. And in chapter 20, verse 1, it's interesting to note that it's an angel coming down out of heaven that seizes the dragon, that ancient serpent. It's Christ who wins the battle, but it's the angel who is Satan's opposite number. Of course, uh, Satan himself is only a fallen angel, and I really just simply make this point so to encourage none of us to hold on to any sort of dualistic view uh, that good and evil are equal and opposite, because they're not. As we read in this chapter, evil has a start and an end. Goodness does not. So we're looking at what the coming of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection did 2,000 years ago to the power of Satan. Uh, we've heard, read that the angel binds him, throws him down into the abyss, locking it and sealing it over. Satan can no longer deceive and lead people astray because the gospel has been let loose. But why, if Satan is bound and in this abyss that's sealed over and locked, why is evil so rampant in the world? Isn't this just hyperbole? Isn't this just 
an exaggeration to say that he's unable to deceive? Well, I'd argue that it's no more than anywhere else in the New Testament. If you look at um, 2 Timothy 1, verse 10. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then what about in Hebrews 2, verse 14? Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And then one more in uh, Colossians 2, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, um, over them by the cross. Destroy, disarm, triumph. If there's a problem with a description in Revelation, then it extends to the rest of the New Testament. Satan is not permitted to deceive the nations and hold them under his sway. Every time a new convert is added to the church, Satan's inability to deceive the nations is proclaimed afresh. The gospel is spreading to all continents regardless of what the devil may try to do. He's imprisoned, bound, and restricted by the faithful ministry and confession of Christians worldwide. But why in verse 3 must Satan be set free for a short time? Well, I think verse 3 anticipates verses 7 to 10 with their renewed outburst of activity and the dragon's final judgment in the lake of fire. There are parallels to this end of millennium release elsewhere in Revelation. For example, we saw that the beast who came out with the sea, with the, uh, which had been fatally wounded, um, or so it seems, th that he, he, he recovered. And so I think there is a pattern there uh, of Satan's own career. John doesn't say why God set Satan free, but it's obviously part of God's plan for judging the world. And whatever the reason, Satan's re release results in his defeat. And I wonder if we're in that short period now, that short final period of intense opposition. Well, I'm sure our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world who are being persecuted and losing their lives every day might well think that they are. But I don't really think we can guess it's interesting to look back at the church's history. If you want the church to expand, you persecute it. If you want to kill it off, you pamper it. And in chapter 12, verse 12, it describes the devil as being in a great fury when time is short, when Satan is in his death throes. And that's a time, of course, of great danger. Christians are being persecuted. But we mustn't forget that Satan cannot harm the church. Remember what Jesus said to Peter, that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And before we uh, go on to Satan's doom and the judgment of the dead, I want to just to touch on verses 4 to 6. And I, I can't obviously do these verses full justice, but all I want to say is that if you take an amillennialist view, 
it enables one to read these verses, verses four to six, as taking place in our present experience, in the present church age. Here in this age, God's people already reign as kings and priests. John tells us so back in chapter one, verse six in Revelation, where he writes this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. The first resurrection, if you take that view, is perfectly understandable as a way of referring to what the New Testament in many places describes as a passing from death to life, namely Christians being, you know, people being born again when they become Christians. And the saints are all who enjoy this new life. Perhaps in verse four, John's distinguishing uh, between those who have and those who have not yet gone through physical death. But even so, they will all live and reign with Christ. And verse 5 can be taken in the same sense. If God has not made us alive together with Christ, we shall remain dead through our sins for the rest of this age, till the day when even the wicked rise, though, of course, not to eternal life. And so to the final section, verses 11 to 15, where the dead are judged. At the judgment, the books are opened. They represent God's judgment, and in them are recorded the deeds of everyone, good and evil. Rulers, road sweepers, kings, princes, politicians, lawyers, doctors, cleaners, chimney sweeps, all mankind, both great and small. Everyone's book opened. The record of me, all my rebellion, all my actions, all my thoughts, all the words, all the profanities I've ever uttered, all the needy I have ignored, although all those I have failed to share the gospel with, all the members of the opposite sex I've treated badly, all the lies I've uttered, all the filthy things I've chosen to look at, all the moments in my life of which I am so deeply ashamed, all laid bare in front of God, the Father and God the Son. And knowing that as each filthy page is looked at by God, Jesus will be there blotting it out with his blood, line by line, entry by entry, page by page, chapter by chapter, all paid for, obliterated by the precious blood of the Lamb, slain for you and me for the forgiveness of our sins. And as I stand there in awe of God, no doubt trembling and afraid, I will look to Jesus as my advocate and savior, knowing that by his death, I am saved. But how I fear for those who will be standing there near me when Jesus turns to his father and says, I never knew him. And more frightening still, there will be amongst them some of us who have claimed to know Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you, away from you, 
Away from me, you evildoers. That is the most frightening warning of all. Now, the whole concept of judgment sits uncomfortably with many, and, and it's obvious why it does, because it's not a pretty idea. Indeed, many Christians believe that God is so loving that it doesn't really matter what we do in this life or indeed whether we actually believe in him or not, that we shall all get to enjoy what you're going to hear about next Sunday in the final chapters. But I don't find anywhere in Scripture that supports that position. Because if it were so, why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he have to die? He could have just come and told us all about how wonderful and loving the Father is. What point was there to his death? Now, I'm afraid judgment is very real and cannot be avoided, and so we have to prepare for it. And, of course, the great news for us is there's no set list of tasks to perform. There are no hoops to get through. It's just one simple free gift to take hold of, the gift of grace by which we can have faith. On that judgment day, as our books are open, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will either look at us with the love a parent has for their child or, frighteningly, with a look of a stranger. We must ask ourselves, how will he look at us on that day? If you don't yet know Christ or are worried about your relationship, perhaps you've lost the days of your early faith when you loved and knew the Lord and you walked with him in, in a real intimacy. Then I encourage you to come forward at the end of the service and to be prayed for. Chapter 20 ends with death itself and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire being the second and final death. What a picture. We've seen Satan defeated, his armies routed, false prophets slain, and evil judged, and even death itself finished. And as you'd expect, we don't hear any more in the Bible about Satan or beasts again. It's all finished. It's done. The thousand years, the rule of Christ in our hearts. It's all wonderful news. But why is it that so many of us can live defeated lives when we should be living every day in the victory of the cross? What does that victory bring to us today, now? Well, I'm going to finish by telling you a story of the remarkable experience of a Ugandan pastor called Kifa Sampani, who pastored under, in, when Idi Amin was ruling Uganda. It's an astonishing encouragement, but it also has a warning. So first, the encouragement. In his quest to turn Uganda into a Muslim state, Amin hunted and killed tens of thousands of Christians. One of those he hunted was Kifa Sempani, a pastor of a 14,000-member church in Kampala. But the Lord kept on delivering him miraculously from Amin's secret police and his death squads. One Easter Sunday, five assassins trapped Kifa after a service, surrounding him and pointing their guns at his head. The leader said to him, We're going to kill you. Is there anything you want to say before you die? Kifa looked at the leader's face, which was contorted with hatred, even though they'd never met. He thought that they wouldn't have to kill him because he was so scared, he thought he was just going to die of a heart attack there and then. With rifles pointed at his head, seemingly paralyzed with fear, Kifa heard a distant voice, which he realized was his own, saying, 
You don't need to kill me. I'm already dead. My life is dead and hidden in Christ. It is your lives that are in danger. You are dead in your sins. I will pray to God after you have killed me that he will spare you from eternal destruction. After what seemed like an eternity, the leader's gun gradually lowered and a look of amazement came over his face. Could you tell me what exactly you mean by that? He asked. Kiefer explained, explained to him about Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, and judgment. And at the end, the assassins put their guns down and Kiefer led them all to Christ. They became leaders in his church. What, what was it about his faith? What was Kiefer's faith like in those hard times? He was very near to God. God was very real to him. And he lived in the power of the resurrection every day. The power of the victory that Christ won on the cross. Now we could just stop there and it's all fantastic. Yes, I'm going to go out here and it's all whoopee-doo and I'm going to go and fight for the Lord Jesus. But I actually want to fill it, finish with the second paragraph of Kiefer's story, which is a warning to us lest we become complacent and arrogant in our salvation. Eventually, eventually Kiefer came to the United States where he enrolled in the seminary. But after being in the States for only a year, he noticed a change in his life. He said, in Uganda, I read the Bible for hope and life to hear God's promises, to hear his commands and obey them. Now in the security of my new life, I found myself reading scripture to analyze texts. I came to enjoy abstract discussions. Fellowship with other students revolved around ideas rather than the work of God in our lives. It was not the blood of Christ that gave us unity, but our agreement on doctrinal issues. We came together not for confession and forgiveness, but for debate. The biggest change came to my prayer life. In Uganda, I had prayed with a deep sense of urgency. I refused to leave my knees until I was certain I had been in the presence of the resurrected Christ. It was not just the gift I needed. I needed to see the giver. Now, when I prayed publicly, I was more concerned to be theologically correct than to be in God's presence. Even my private prayers were no longer the helpless cries of a child. They were spiritual tranquilizers. God himself had become a distant figure. I no longer prayed to him as a living father, but as an impersonal being who did not mind my inattention and unbelief. I don't know about you, but this completely convicts me. When we stand there in front of Jesus and our book is opened, what will Jesus say? Will it be, Father, this person loves me, he knows me, he's been doing your will, he's okay? Or will it be, I never knew him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the victory you won at the cross over Satan and his legions. Forgive us when we pray theologically nice prayers to a distant being instead of 
prayers with a heartfelt cry to a loving father. Forgive us when our Bible reading becomes textual analysis instead of spiritual food. Forgive us, Lord, when our fellowship revolves around discussing, batting around ideas instead of the work of God in our lives. Give us the faith, Lord, to live the life of the resurrection today. Give us the faith to live our lives in the shadow of the victory of the cross. Give us the confidence to proclaim your life-saving gospel in our lives. And above all, Lord Jesus, give us the power of your Holy Spirit to make all this possible. Amen.